Hi, this is Steve Harganon, and welcome to the Future of Education. Tonight, it's the present of education with Ben Daly from High Tech High. Ben, thanks so much for being on. Good to be here. It is Thursday, September 30th. Um, this is a lot of fun for us to have Ben here. Ben, there is a little um, static on your mic. If you don't mind turning it off while I'm talking, that would be great. We'll bring it back on. Future of Education is sponsored by Learn Central. My employer, Illuminate, now becoming Blackboard Collaborate. You'll hear more about that. Learn Central is the free social network I run for educators uh, that has Illuminate baked in. We encourage you to come in and play around. It's a lot of fun. We have announced our global education conference. Uh, Lucy Gray and I are co-chairing a worldwide five-day free online conference on global education. Multiple time zones, multiple languages, and multiple tracks should be just a hoot globaleducationconference.com. We have over 225 presentation submissions, 100 plus global uh, advisors, over 60 partner organizations. Should just be a great way to kind of um, really provide an overview of what's taking place in terms of globally connected education. Coming up on the Future of Education on Monday, a special show with Edutopia. Uh, Julie Evans, Alfie Cohn, Chris Lehman, Deborah Meyer, Will Richardson, Sir Ken Robinson, Gary Steger, and others will join us to talk about elevating the education reform dialogue. A special two-hour show uh, on Monday from 2 to 4 in the afternoon at Pacific time, and that would be 3 to 5. Let's say 3 to 2 to 4. Pacific is going to be 5 to 7 Eastern time. <laughs> and someone's laughing at me. Okay. Uh, on the 7th, Thursday, DiMartino and Walk will talk about their book, The Personalized High School. We've still got Sylvia Martinez coming up, Roger Shannon, Kathleen Cushman bringing her student panel back on the show, Nancy White to talk about communities. Lots of fun events coming up, and several who've committed that aren't on the schedule yet. Um, but a really good schedule uh, coming into the winter, fall and winter. If you've missed the show, the recordings are up. The Paul Peterson show on saving schools was really, really good. Now, for some reason, that recording hasn't come through yet, but when it does, it will go up. But if you haven't heard of Saving Schools, the book, or heard Paul from Harvard, this is really worth looking at. He chronicles um, the lives of many of the prominent education reformers and talks about um, the in an un unintended consequences of a lot of those reforms and sort of how and where we are today. Uh, we talked to uh, Monastery High School about place-based education. Had Charles Fidel talk about 21st century skills in STEM. George Siemens on connectivism. We looked at the BYU learning model. Lots of other shows. We hope you'll look at the recordings and find something of value for you. If this is your first time in Illuminate, we do want to encourage you to participate. The first way you can do that is through the chat. And I always recommend going up to View Layouts and switching yourself to the wide layout. It's much easier to see the chat. At the bottom of the participant window, you have some emoticons, a smiley face, clapping hands, confused look, thumbs down. You can use those to indicate how you're feeling. When we get to Q&A, you can also use the hand with the green up arrow to indicate that you'd like to ask a question and take the microphone. You can ask a question either in the chat or through the microphone. But again, if you want to use the mic, please be sure to go up to Tools Audio, run the Setup Wizard, and make sure your mic is working. Another thing worth noting is you can send private messages in the chat to each other. You'll notice there's a drop-down box for that. But uh, Ben and I, as moderators, do see all of those messages. OK, so it's your chance to let us know where you're listening from. 
look for the wand with the red star at the end. Click on that and then click on the map. And then give a shout out in the chat. Australia, Alaska, maybe time and temperature. Looks like China. <clears throat> Unless you move that dot, we're going to assume somewhere in China. Canada, of course, the US. Well, wherever you're listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, we are sure glad that you have joined us. So Ben, it was really fun for me to read through the material about uh, High Tech High. Uh, and one of the first things that will not have occurred to anybody else, but will be fun for you and me, is that I actually attended Haverford College for a couple of years. That is a surprise. So my father um, had gone to Haverford, grown up in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. Haverford is a small liberal arts college um, in Haverford, Pennsylvania, uh, close to Swarthmore. And it ended up uh, working at Swarthmore. And when I was at that age where I was sending in my college admissions applications, I was on an exchange program in Brazil. And he sent me the Stanford, the Haverford, and the Swarthmore applications. And I went to visit Haverford and fell in love with it. Uh, it sounds like um, you spent all four years. I was only there for two years. I did. It was a great place for me. Okay, and then I did get a note today. Someone complained <coughs> that you that your mention that you wisely moved to San Diego was an affront to those who live in New Hampshire. That's uh, it received as intended. <laughs> oh, that's very fun. Well, it, so it really was fascinating to read about the school. I'm interested that I didn't know that much about it. Um, but in, in clicking through the links, uh, came to the link on Larry Rosenstock. And I don't know how well you know Larry, but was intrigued by this statement in, in a short biography of him on Wikipedia. Uh, he'd been the director of the New Urban School Project. Uh, and his team created three design principles that seemed to be common in the successful urban high schools that they found. These design principles are personalization, real-world connection, and common intellectual mission. To what degree do you think that's um, continued through in terms of how High Tech High works? We consider those our three design principles. So it is very much a, a part of what we're trying to do, I would say. Okay, so that's fascinating. And, and you're going to tell a little bit of the story now, and, um, and, and then we're going to drill down. Uh, before we begin, there's also a terrific about page about um, High Tech High, and I'm going to put it in the chat here. And it does, uh, I'm, I'm wondering who wrote this brilliant copy? <laughs> that's, I, I have to go back and look at it and see what's in there. I'm, I'm kind of scared by what might be there now. It's just so deep and so, uh, uh, well, we'll, we'll it'll, it'll come up in the interview and we'll let it go from there. I did turn on the webcam capability, and I know that you want to turn your webcam on. I'm going to turn mine on briefly. Nobody needs to see me for very long. But there you are. And I'll turn me off. So I'm off again. OK, and uh, um, Ben, sure glad to have you here and have you illuminate Savvy. So uh, you've got control of the slides. Do you want to start going through that slideshow, and then we'll uh, shift to Q&A from me and then to the audience? Great. And stop me before I go too long, because I could happily talk for six hours. I don't think that's what anyone else probably has in mind. 
By the way, greetings from a hotel room in Pasadena. So I don't normally, my, this is actually not my office or my house. Um, so I don't have quite this decor where I'm living. But anyways, that's why, that's why you see me as you do. Okay. You know, and you may want to, if you get tired of listening to me, you can go to uh, hightechhide.org. We've got a, quite a few resources that I, that I do want to highlight. Um, I think we, we need to change our website for one thing, but um, there's a lot of stuff there that people don't really think know about that's, that, I, that I think is pretty cool and worth looking at, and I've got some links further to show people some things. Hey, Manila, Philippines. I uh, taught in Manila uh, in 1995 at the French International School, so um, I'm going to start speaking to you in Hawaiian. Whoops. Kamustaka. Um, okay, let me just give you a few um, pieces of information about High Tech High. We currently have um, five high schools, three middle schools, and an elementary school, and we're all in San Diego County. And we're opening another middle school and elementary school in Chula Vista next fall. So we currently have about 3,800 students. So we're kind of like a very small school district, but we are a, a bunch of public charter schools that are grouped together. And these are a few things people are always wondering, so I thought I would just state them at the outset. So in terms of our admissions, people do have, kids have to apply to come to our schools. Um, so there's a self-selection bias, of course. It's not a neighborhood school, um, so there's, that's a factor for sure. Um, the, the applicants attend an orientation session where we explain that we do not have tackle football, and we, although we have textbooks, we're not marching through them, so this might not be the place for you. Um, and then we have a, a zip code-based lottery system, and people would never believe us when we say that, and they think that we're trying to like cream the best students in San Diego, and in fact, um, quite the contrary, we're really trying to, uh, we're overwhelmed with applicants from uh, parents who have more social capital, and, and we're really trying to, um, everything we're doing in our admissions process is trying to get the broadest spectrum of students possible in our school. And we are very uh, intentionally trying to be a, a diverse school, and the old-fashioned meaning of diverse, not diverse meaning 100% of a certain kind of kid, but actually meaning diverse meaning different kinds of kids. And we actually have a statistical advantage for, uh, in the lottery system for students who qualify for free and reduced uh, lunch. And one, just to clarify what I mean by a zip code-based lottery system, uh, we look at U.S. Census data, and then let's say there's 10% of kids living in a particular zip code, then 10% of the students who get in, um, essentially, it's not a quota system, it's actually a, it's, it's a, we're giving more ballots for kids. Um, but we're essentially trying to be uh, we're trying to be socioeconomically diverse and racially diverse, and we're not allowed to use race um, in our admissions process. And the good news and bad news of housing segregation in San Diego, like a lot of places, is that zip code is a very uh, effective way to, to get uh, racial diversity. So we try to be reflective of the greater San Diego area. So here's our current demographics. I just, uh, I just downloaded these last night. Uh, you can see them there. Uh, our goal is to be 40% free and reduced lunch, which is kind of the California average, and we're, uh, we were lower, and we've been working really hard the last couple of years to get that number up, and I'm kind of happy that we're, we're getting there. I guess I'll just let you quickly look at that, and I'm going to move on. In terms of just one piece of results, and my point is not to like brag about our schools, but people always want to ask about, what about your results? So. Um, of our students entering in ninth grade, 82% graduate from our schools four years later. Of course, 18% are not dropping out, but that's very unusual. 
uh, from our schools, but they might be moving. We have lots of military families. There's kids who want to play tackle football. They realize there's all kinds of reasons, of course. But 80% of the kids who come in ninth grade are ending up staying and graduating from our schools. And then uh, of those of those graduates, uh, almost all are going to college. I think we've had about uh, eight students now in the last um, six or seven graduating classes who have not gone off to college. And 82% are um, have either graduated college or are still enrolled. Um, so that's kind of, and that's that's the, um, when we started our school 10 years ago, that was something that we really felt was very important, much more than um, doing well on bubble, bubble, bubble choice, multiple choice question tests. We really wanted to have kids going to college and doing well there. And so that's why we tracked that number um, pretty closely. Oh, I also want to mention a lot of people have heard of High Tech High, but actually don't know um, that we have started a graduate school of education. And so we have um, two credentialing programs where teachers are getting their credentials. They could be working at our schools or not working at our schools, and they're, and they're earning a credential. We also have um, uh, two MED programs, one in teacher leadership, one in school leadership. And then we've started this year an online um, kind of a blended learning program. It's not a degree-granting program, and we have eight students. Four are in Hawaii, and four are in uh, Toronto. I'm just scanning the names to see if any of them are here right now. I don't think so. Um, and so our, that means I can say different things about it than if they were here, of course. Um, that's a joke. It's kind of weird when no one laughs at your jokes. You know what I mean? That's the tricky thing about being here online. Um, okay, thank you, Steve. Um, for, so for our leading school certificate program, we actually have uh, students who they come a couple times uh, every, they've come, they'll be coming three times this year in person, and then also we're doing things uh, through Illuminate, um, actually kind of we're helping them work on some projects back in their schools. Let's see here. Okay, so that's kind of the quick overview of our stuff. And maybe, Steve, I don't know, it may be better to, um, take some questions now, or else I've got some slides of images of, of student work that I'd like to show, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure what's the best uh, step right now. So I'd love to ask some questions. Great. So it seems as though uh, the school is driven by a mission, not just to do well by the students, but to also exemplify a way of thinking about education. Does the graduate school program have the dual purpose of helping you sort of enculturate people into the high-tech high way of things? Exactly. And I apologize, everyone, that my headset, I, I was joking with Steve about people who use Illuminate not having good headsets, and now I'm, I'm <laughs> that's of course exactly what I'm now doing uh, here. Um, I have a different computer because I was scared to use my little netbook, and now I had to change headsets, and now it's not working that well. Uh, so, you know, when we started 10 years ago, I was a founding teacher at the school, and, and I got a, a teaching credential at Haverford College. Um, Allison Cook Sather was my mentor. She's still there. She runs, I think, one of the best credentialing programs in the country. And so I, certainly credentialing, um, good credentialing is a really good idea. Um, but I, I don't think every program is so hot, frankly. Um, and so before, when we opened the school, we could hire anybody we wanted to. Um, they did not have to have a teaching credential. And then with the advent of No Child Left Behind, uh, then we did have to get, we, we did have to hire credentialed teachers, partly because of No Child Left Behind, partly because of California's interpretation of that. And so we, we felt that we could hire more highly qualified teachers than people who merely had a teaching credential if we started credentialing our own teachers. So about 
I think eight years ago now, we started credentialing our own teachers. That was really the primary purpose, was just that we wanted to be able to hire the teachers that we wanted to hire. Um, then we kind of got into the induction program, which in California, it's sort of the second stage of once you have a preliminary credential, you do some mentoring in it to get an induction program uh, to get your full credential. And so um, we had all these teachers who had just done our program or they'd done another program they were teaching in our schools and they would, they would have to go out to a traditional university to do the induction program and it would be A, expensive and B, not necessarily that consistent with what we're trying to uh, do in our schools. And so we thought it would be a benefit we could offer our teachers if we went through the pro By the way, uh, these hurdles were not exactly uh, easy. We, the, first, the first three t years that we submitted our intern credentialing program, um, we, we had it rejected because it wasn't tall enough. So um, it's, we've <laughs> it's been a, a challenge to kind of get through some of these um, issues. And then in terms of the graduate school, uh, there's a few reasons that we wanted to start a graduate school. And one of them is that we were on this kick about opening more schools and opening more schools on this treadmill. Um, and you said hand raised, so don't worry, we'll get to you. Um, and so, I'm gathering my thoughts here. So we, oh, so we were on a treadmill of opening more and more schools and feeling like, feeling like that, you know, we, we're, we own our own buildings. We're trying to be the little pigs that built with brick. And, and so it's, it's not that easy to keep finding enough capital to, to um, buy buildings, uh, being a little small charter schools that we are. Um, and so we want to have a broad impact that we want to teach our kids really well and we also want to save the world. And so we think a graduate school, we thought a graduate school could be a way to try to influence um, high schools and schooling uh, more broadly than just our own school. So that was part of the purpose. And part of the purpose, again, was trying to have professional development for our own teachers that we thought would be um, you know, better for them than maybe some of the other alternatives that were available to them. So I, I hope that answered that question. It did. And th so there's something very special going on here, something significant, and it's the, it's the vision that, that you have at High Tech High for what should be happening in education. And the brick metaphor comes through in several different ways. And as I recall, there's, is it bricking? Am I thinking of that term correctly? That's uh, on this this lovely about page, and I'm going to scroll down to it. Oh, in brick, building schools in brick. So, um, what is it that you think you're doing so well, and and how do you think it could change uh, sort of the current perception or story or dialogue around education? Well, I think it's important to say that we are a work in progress, and we're you know we're just doing the best we can. Um, we have we had one one school ten years ago, and now we have nine. And that's a, you know we had twelve teachers the first year I was one of those twelve, and now we have one hundred and eighty teachers. And so um, you know it's not that uh, just being kind of you know not bad. That's a uh, that's a that's one of our goals just for starters. So I, I don't really uh, kind of come to this group saying, you know, yeah, we've got it figured out. In terms of what we're trying to do, we, we really, there's a lot of things. And we have those, as you mentioned, those design principles of personalization, adult world connection, and common intellectual mission. And so in terms of personalization, we're, we're trying to have relatively small schools. Our, our schools have crept up to about 540 students now. 
Um, it is not easy um, in California on the ADA that we're operating on. It's about $6,000 per student. We've got about a 21% cut in the last two years. I know there's people who have less than us probably on this uh, on this session and, and also people who have more than that. Um, so in terms of personalization, relatively small schools, trying to have relatively small class sizes, we're up to about 27 or 28 with budget cuts, we've had to do that, um, which to me is really large. Um, our surroundings district um, has class sizes of 38 to 43, um, and, and they have more money than we do. Um, so that's, pers that's a little bit of personalization. And of course, we're trying, to, we're, ha we're trying to have the students do meaningful work. We're trying to have them um, making and building and doing things, making documentary films, building robots, um, doing projects that, that have a, a meaning, real meaning in the world, and then um, presenting that to authentic audiences, and not just getting a you know a B minus on a piece of paper that they throw in the trash, but trying to publish op-ed pieces. Um, yeah, 24 is too many. I totally agree with that. Um, so, you know, let me actually. I think it might be helpful if I could just show a couple quick slides because I, I see some questions there um, about you know pedagogy and philosophy. Um, we think that separating using your hands and using your mind is a false dualism, and we think that everyone needs to, to learn how to do both those things really well. And so, you know, this is a walking on water project um, that students completed. I'll just kind of quickly cycle through a couple images so you can get a feel for the kinds of work that we're doing. This was a, a submarine project, a fully autonomous submarine, uh, excuse me, partially autonomous uh, submarines that uh, students were building in their uh, engineering course. Um, this is a project called Analog Flash for Windows, which is one of my favorites. And I've got, in some cases, we have resources on our website that I've that I've put here. I hope people on the archive can can come back and kind of click through to these links. This this uh, project that this boy was working on was a motion activated. Um, basically, it was a display in a window, and then um, when you walked by, all these little they had like I think about. Um, you know, I think about 800 LEDs, and when you walked by, then the um, the LEDs would light up based on, on you going by. And this is a project we really didn't think they were going to be able to do it, and and then they did it. It was pretty cool. This these, this project was a senior project, and it was an art teacher, a uh, engineering teacher, and a math teacher, uh, and they they com they combined together to put the um, to to do this project. And the the quick idea was that they were going to. I'm going to get this right. They were going to explain a concept in physics and display it in an aesthetically pleasing way, or they were going to make a piece of art and explain the physics behind that piece of art. And so that's kind of what was going on in that project. And of course, that that could be like a three-hour conversation, just that one project. Of course, we have you know the mousetrap powered cars, another kind of classic. This one, I think, these were ninth-grade students, I believe, that were working on the, this project. And we have a FIRST Robotics team, which I know a lot of schools do. Um, we were especially proud that um, two years ago, our three team captains were all girls, which had not been the, the case for us in the past. And um, actually, this student was one of my students. I still taught a course up till about uh, three or four years ago. And I taught a 10th grade robotics course. And she started in my class and then went on to be the captain of the uh, robotics team, which was kind of cool. And this is a uh, eighth grade project, a hovercraft project. Um, where students, uh, this is kind of nice because every eighth grader does this project, and it's kind of cool because the sixth graders are, um, you know, the sixth graders are looking forward to, to building a hovercraft. They're so excited about it. I just, yesterday I saw students out there um, working on their hovercrafts. Um, I think, 
just two more points. I guess I will keep. I would. I want to show this. I hope this is okay that I'm droning on here. Um, one of our key ideas is that it's so important that students display their work to somebody. So in terms of our design principles, the second one is adult world connection or real world connection. So we want students presenting work to a real audience or an authentic audience. And we call it, so one of the things we do is we call it a um, an evening, we call it an exhibition. And it's an evening event. And every student in the school is there presenting their work. It could be trifold boards. It could be a film festival where everyone's showing their work. It could be um, everyone's displaying their robots. And I, I used to do like a robotics competition that parents would come in and see. And we invite um, you know community members. It could be a book signing. Students are, have created a book. And now they're there um, showing their um, so assigning, actually autographing their books, which has been really cool. Um, our school was on Oprah, which is fairly embarrassing. Um, but I bring it up because she said to um, one of our students, and I understand, there's no books at High Tech High. And, and the student was so intimidated by having Oprah Winfrey in her face that she said, that's right, we don't have any books. Um, and in fact, our students are making tons of books. Um, and I've got a link a little bit further along that you can, uh, that I'll show you. Um, where, we, where we're kind of just trying to display all our books. But we're using Blurb and lulu.com, blurb.com, if people know of it. It's a, I, think it's, I think it is a, such a simple, easy way to have a real product that kids are unbelievably proud of. Um, and it's honestly not even that much extra work compared to what you might have done anyway. So if you're going to have kids write poetry, great. Assemble it in a book. And it, it, maybe it sounds like, well, you're just putting this flash on it. But I don't think so, because the the difference of having students have a real this book I we made a book can you I'm a published author I mean it's so fantastic um, and then of course we try to bring in um, you know a literary society in town will come in and, and look at the book and give our kids feedback along the way and at the end and so it, I, I think it's a really important piece of it so exhibition for us is important I just want to throw a couple uh, images so you can kind of get a feel for the place my favorite thing about exhibition um, I have a couple favorite things. One of them is, you know, when I go to the Exploratorium in San Francisco, which is a science museum, and you, any big museum, you go in and by the, you know, you're, they're there for about two hours, and you think, my goodness, I'm exhausted. I can't possibly see anymore. And I and I've seen like one tenth of this museum, and that's actually what I, what our exhibitions now feel like, which was not true when we started. There's just so much amazing work going on. If I may brag about that. And you just feel like, I don't even have time to see everything. It's like a shame because there's so much cool stuff going on. So that's one thing I really like. The other thing that I really appreciate about this is that it, for us, it's a driver of improvement. Because you know, one way to get accountability and to drive school improvement is to publish multiple choice test scores in newspapers and publish our teachers' names along with those scores and embarrass everybody into doing better which, as everyone knows, is a fantastic motivational strategy. Um, we should ask Alfie Cohn what he thinks about that next week. Don't even bother, actually. He'll start getting like irate, right? Um, you know, so what we try to do is have make the student work public. Because if you do that, then some of the work is fantastic, and some is less than fantastic. And I've had students who had less than fantastic work. And there's something about making it public that just puts it puts pressure on students. It puts pressure on me as a teacher. It puts pressure on me as a school director or principal. It puts pressure on me now in the role that I have. Because we just want to be doing better and better and better work. So 
that's kind of what we're up to with exhibitions. So I, I, was, I went on way too long. I'll stop there. So it's interesting because I want to compare your sort of thoughtful humility with um, this paragraph from um, a section called Changing Schools on the website. At High Tech High, we believe that change, change in schools happens, change in schooling happens, not incrementally by adding programs, but by generating holistic designs that enable new ways of teaching and learning. We believe that even the language we use to describe schooling needs to change. School reformers need to develop and commit to simple, elegant language that speaks to the deep purpose of schools, to prepare all students for entry into the world of work and citizenship in democratic society. I feel like you're very unique. Do you not feel that unique now? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Um, you know, when people come to our school, they walk in the front door and they say, this doesn't feel like a school, and we say, that's right. <laughs> well, that, and that must, that, I'm, I'm sure you take it, and it is a compliment. So um, have you followed the debate at all this week, the education nation kind of reform education debate, and how do you personally respond to it? Oh, give me a little context, sorry. I'm not sure if I have. Well, so NBC did this uh, week-long series uh, of events, an Education Nation Summit. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg um, committed $100 million to a school district in New Jersey. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the need to reform education. Um, and I, you know, I get the sense from your website that you see much more of a slow kind of change in culture that needs to come from helping people experience this vision and then making the change. So I don't want to put words into your mouth, but my sense is that you would have a little bit of a different perspective on, well, we don't have good schools because of unions. Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? I mean, we do not have a union at our school. And you know, I think that as a school leader, I was a college basketball coach and a high school basketball coach. And as the coach of the team, I could um, select the players. Um, you know, you think about an NBA coach trying to field a great team, they really need to have some say over that. And we have that at High Tech High, and that's really helpful. On the other hand, I do think there, I understand why people feel like there's a teacher bashing kind of movement going on right now. And, and, and it's not very helpful, I don't think. Um, but, you know, it's, I don't know. I don't have the answers at all. I think that, um, yeah, I just don't have the answers at all. I think that, you know, I think it's kind of cool that movies like Waiting for Superman and the Lottery are coming out and kind of galvanizing people around. Um, get people are talking about education, I think, in a way that has not been necessarily happening, in my experience, um, in prior years. It seems to be more kind of capturing the nation's attention a little bit. Um, the I just think there's such a, a manic obsession on test scores. And I just, I just don't know that's going to get us there. Well, I feel like in a lot of ways you helped to reframe the debate. And I'll use the example of um, the process of getting into post-secondary education. So for high-tech high, or at least the, the, the external verbiage is you know, that our job is to help prepare students for entry into um, good post-secondary education and to the world of work and being citizens in a democracy. A lot of the talk right now is about the fact that preparing to get 
into college through the admissions process is actually a negative. But it seems like you kind of leapfrog that into, well, let's really prepare the students. And if we were going to do that, what would we do as a school? Yeah, I think that the college, it's a tension because, you know, we're doing projects with, you know, trying to have work that has a real audience. And then they go to college, in many cases, uh, they're mostly not going to Haverford, first of all. And they're going to classes of 500. Um, and they're mostly getting lectured to. And a lot of what they're doing is memorizing facts and reproducing it for a test. And so, you know, people say, hey, you can't have them doing projects. That's not preparing them for college. And I always feel like, like I see that point. And I also feel like if we took that argument to its logical extreme, then we would have kindergartners in class sizes of 500 in lectures so we could really prepare them for the pedagogy they're about to experience when they go to college. And so on the one hand, I'm, there's a problem with preparing kids for college as it currently exists. And on the other hand, there's the, there's the world as it is. And a college degree is, I think, very important uh, in our society. And so, and also, of course, not everyone has to go to college. That's clearly true. But I also think that we don't want to mispredict with 14-year-olds which kids are going to go to college and which kids aren't. And send, put some kids on a vocational track and some kids on an academic track. We want all of our kids actually to be um, in an academic program and also in a vocational program. We want them kind of prepared for career and college. I know everyone says that. And it's kind of like the hip thing to say these days. Um, but we think it's really important that it's kind of this use of hand and mind, which is also hip to say, um, we take that really seriously. So it's it's about preparing for college, but um, but there that doesn't that doesn't um, there's more to the story, I guess. So I like I like that you're saying and or what I'm hearing is you know there are no easy answers. It's you can't just say schools are underperforming because of the unions or because of a particular item. But what I think I hear you saying is there are a complex set of things that we know that we want to accomplish for our students, and we work hard at doing that. And we're building the culture, and so we build slowly. And if I if I read the in brick piece correctly, you know, trying to make sure that as we grow, we grow in a way that's consistent with our culture so that we do a good job of exemplifying this alternative culture of schooling. And that we just want to be a good example of, of how to do a good job in helping students learn. That's right. And I also want to add, um, because I've let myself talk about unions, um, you know, there's a fourth design principle which we have kind of added. Um, when when Larry Rosenstock did the, the New Urban High School project, he went around the country looking for examples of great high schools in urban areas that were getting the results with kids that you would not expect, particularly um, low-income students going to college in numbers you would not expect. And they, they found a bunch of schools they really liked. This was in the mid, I think, mid to late 90s. And they came up with these six design principles. And we've talked about three of them, personalization, adult world connection, common intellectual mission. And, and those were the three that we started High Tech High with. But there's a fourth uh, from that list of six, which I think is really deeply embedded in our work at High Tech High, uh, so much so that I've been on kind of a one-man um, mission to get people to um, accept that as a fourth design principle. So sometimes I put it on the website and things like that as kind of like my sneaky way of trying to get um, to convince us all that it should be stated. Uh, and that one is teacher as designer. And I think that's so important for a couple of reasons. One, because it's an accurate reflection of what we're trying to do. We are trying to hire great teachers, 
and articulate this vision of getting kids doing interdisciplinary projects on teams. Um, we might want to talk about the schedule at some point, which is, I think, where a lot of school reform is in your daily schedule, actually. Um, but um, so we have teachers working in teams, doing, trying, we're trying to do interdisciplinary projects in teams, and you know, present to a real audience. But but we're also saying that's on the teacher to decide. So we don't we don't cede the curriculum to the state, to the Common Core, to the textbook publishers to me, to the school principals, we're, we're, we're um, to a fault perhaps, we are giving power to teachers to make decisions. And I think that we attract higher quality teachers, and I think that teachers become more high quality as a result of having that, that power and that autonomy and that decision making. They need to be really thoughtful about their work. Um, and then of course we need to work collaboratively and, ha and help support people who need um, who need that support. So that's a big piece of it. The second side of that is in terms of like decision making in the school between budgeting, um, should we buy more computers or should we fix the carpet? Um, what's, what days, what should we have, which, which days should be staff days next year? Um, you know, all kinds of po policies, large and small, as much as possible, we are trying to be teacher run. And so that's one of the things I think that, you know, there's a teacher bashing argument, which I don't agree with. There's also a a charter bashing argument which says that charters are anti-teacher and I, I don't know about other schools I just know well actually I want to say that I think some of the schools that I've been to that have had the most progressive employment practices have actually been in non-unionized charter schools and I just think that that needs to be understood also and I'm not saying that the cure is to have 100% charter schools I'm just saying that's an inconvenient truth I think for people who want to say that charters are anti-teacher and when you talk about all charters in large mass. So, yeah. And again, we keep coming around, I think, a little bit to a theme here, which is that the, the political way of representing something loses a lot of the nuance. And what you're trying to do is just do a really good job with the kids you have. And, and you're struggling sometimes here in answering, because I, I think maybe the temptation would be for, for easy pronouncements when, in fact, it sounds to me like you're just doing good hard work to help kids have a good education. Um, and, I, and we've heard this in other interviews, uh, especially the Teachers as Partners piece. I'm kind of curious, well, it, it's about time to switch to the audience Q&A, and, and, and I think we'll have a, a lot of fun doing that. But um, you're, you're doing, I think, objectively a very good job, and so are many other schools around the country. And yet it seems like we don't have uh, much of an environment in which those successes are often copied. Do you have a sense of why it's so difficult for us to replicate success in our in our larger system? Um, I'm distracted by the comment that this is not really different from um, other public schools, which you know, of course, may be true. Um, I'm sorry. Actually, ask that question one more time. Okay. Well, and feel free to just address the comment instead of my question. My question was, why, why do we have difficulty in general um, finding good models, because yours is a very good model, and replicating it in our own communities? Is it because we don't have the uh, interest of political will, or um, do most schools that are not charters not have the freedom, do you think, to actually kind of make the changes that you've made? You know, um, there's no, there's no easy pronouncements about this one either. Um, 
And I kind of regret that I've gone down this uh, political um, road, which is not normally what I like to talk to you um, about so much. Um, you know, yeah, you've pushed me, Steve. Thank you. Um, why is it hard? It's hard for us. You know, um, I talk to folks who, I'll put it like this. We're so passionately believing in getting kids doing meaningful work and, and, and presenting it to a real audience. It's like in our DNA, it's what we're all about. And I can walk, you can come walk into classrooms and, and see it not happening, uh, even though we're working so hard on it, which I think is just like not a knock on anyone. It's just like it's hard. And I'm struck by when I talk to colleagues in other um, schools, Let's, take, let's talk about charter management organizations, for example. So it's these kind of groups of charters that have organized into these small districts, and, or not so small. And, 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 and I say, well, what's your pedagogical approach? Which, first of all, people usually don't have an, get confused by that question. It's like you talk to a software company, and you say, well, what's your pedagogical approach? And they're like, oh, uh, we'd have to do it. Well, you'd have to ask somebody else about that one. I feel like, OK, you told me enough already. Um, so, but people, in, I've talked to folks, my colleagues in charters, and they and they say, well, you know, we're really flexible. We can have all. We feel that we can have lots of different kinds of approaches in our schools, and I think that sounds great in theory. But it's hard enough when like you're obsessively trying to do one thing. If you're going to kind of just do everything, I, I don't know how you're going to do anything really well. So, you know, prior to me getting coming to High Tech High. I think that there was a few things that happened that were really smart. And one of them is that teachers arrive, adults arrive an hour before the students do. And so we actually have time to plan and work collaboratively. And, and that's a long story about what we do with that time, but that's a significant um, piece. Um, our design principles kind of work well in concert. And, and I'm being kind of vague now. Um, I just, uh, yeah, you know what, I'm going to be a little vague here. I think that um, there's just way, there's a lot of different pieces that we're doing that work very well together. And I would say, for example, like the KIPP schools, which, you know, um, I'm glad there's KIPP schools. And, and I think we probably should have more KIPP schools. Look at me, I keep delving into these like really, uh, really uh, controversial topics. Um, and, you know, um, and I don't necessarily would know if I would want my child to go to a KIPP school. But I think that they work in the sense, and the sense in which I think they work is that they are consistent. Here's what we're about. They have a narrative. There's a story. This is what our schools are about. And I think a lot of schools don't have a narrative that everyone's kind of behind. And so, you know, there's all kinds of structural issues why it's hard. There's, um, there's sort of legislative issues. There's, there's, you know, count the reasons. There's, there's elected school boards, frankly, I don't think are helping us that much. Um, you know, you name the topic. They're not really helping us that much. Um, and on top of all that, I think most schools don't have a narrative. And they're just trying to be everything for everyone. And, and I think that's hard to be really good at anything if that's, your, if that's kind of what you're doing. Okay, I'm really glad you went there. I, I hope you don't feel any uh, worry about having gone down um, blind alleys here, but I think this has been really helpful. And Leonard made the comment, you know, that um, really this is uh, what you do is paradigm breaking. And, and I hope that people will read that about page. Um, and I'm hoping, Ben, that you'll give us some other places that we can go to get good information about sort of more of the details of how that narrative plays out. Uh, in larger ways. We're going to ask for a Q&A from the audience now. While we're doing so, I wonder if you might not briefly describe 
um, the schedule, because you had talked about the schedule. I think that's of interest. And your mic is off. Um, and while while that's being described, if you'd like to ask Ben a question, please feel free to raise your hand using the hand with a green up arrow at the bottom of your participant window, or put it in the chat. And if we've missed the chat, hopefully uh, if we've missed a question in the chat. Hopefully you'll post it again. In terms of our schedule. Um, of course, you know every schedule is kind of this uh, pre-Copernican Byzantine structure that um, is inexplicable. But to say it kind of simply, we have a five-period day. Whoops, I'm not very good at that. We have a five-period day, and most classes meet for two periods. So, Steve, if you were the humanities teacher, you would be teaching both history and English, and I would be the math and science teacher teaching both math and science. The two of us would have class size of about 25 to 28. Um, we used to say 22. It's getting worse and worse every year for us here. Um, so then the two of us have our 56-ish students for the year. And I teach them for two hours, a little bit more than two hours. And then they go over to you. We swap, we swap students for you know, another two, two hours plus. Then we have a common planning period where they're going off and they're taking Spanish or art or something else. Um, and that's pretty much that's the day. So it's a very different kind of structure than if you imagine a eight-period day or a seven-period day with you know the class size of 35 and each teacher has 235 students that Ted Sizer talked about. Um, we were very intentional about having a small teaching team with a small number of students. Um, and there's so many things that that's an example of what I was trying to sort of failing to, to explain in terms of some smart structures. So if you're a new teacher. We're going to try to pair you with a more experienced teacher. And so there's a, there's a really nice level of support there for new teachers, even though, yeah, it's 56 students, and that's a lot. Um, still, there's you and one other person, and you're paired up with this, with this group of students. And so let's say a, student struggling with a teacher is struggling with classroom management. Well, sometimes we have walls that we can open up between the classrooms. And so you know, the mentor teacher can kind of model how to manage the classroom, and then um, Kind of, it's, I think it's very helpful for a new teacher to realize it's not like they can't actually say, "Oh, well, but that wouldn't work in, with my students." They go, "I see it's working for you," but it's actually it's the same students working right next door, and so there's a way in which I think that um, that's very helpful. So that's a little bit about our schedule, which I think um, is it is it, it makes it a lot easier to do interdisciplinary work when you have a small number of adults working with a small number of kids, and that's part of our uh, what we're trying to do. And uh, Ben, uh, high tech high, but is the technology the driver? Or, uh, my sense is that it's not. That's a good question. Yeah, I, I used to always apologize for our stupid name, um, but now I'm kind of gotten used to it. So now I can't. Now I forget to apologize. Um, but you know, it's not. We don't think that a technology is like this silver bullet that's going to transform the schools for the 21st century. Um, I do think there's some ways in which there's some tools that are kind of interesting um, that are kind of coming out. I think a lot of tools are ex extraordinarily uninteresting that are out right now. Um, but you know, if we had no computers, then we would do projects that did not involve technology. As it is, we do have. Um, we're about. We're, we've been trying to be t uh, two kids per computer. It's been slipping in the last couple of years. Um, and so because we have computers, we have kids making documentary films, and we do other projects that, that take advantage of technology. But we, we're not trying to just sort of like, we're not trying to be ITT for high school kids and, 
and just teach technology. We're really we don't have any class, we don't have classes in technology. We're trying to use technology as a tool to have to help students make um, interesting, cool projects, including websites and making books through online publishing and other kinds of projects like that. So Patty asks, what is the rubric to measure the exhibition projects? That's a great question. By the way, hi Kathleen. I'm happy to see you here. Um, yeah, you know, and, and someone mentioned that about the exhibition. Um, one thing that's important about sometimes people come, they, they hear about an exhibition or they even come and see it, and they say, well, wait a minute, you know, but did they learn any chemistry? And you know, it wasn't obvious that they learned all these facts. And of course, on the one hand, we're not trying to like memorize all these facts. But on the other hand, and another factor is that the exhibition is not the only kind of it's not the only assessment that's going on. So sometimes people get confused by that, and they see, oh, it's just this like flashy, showy thing. And of course, we want to have kids um, demonstrating their deep understanding. And there's lots of ways that we try to do that. And we do use rubrics to assess um, students. It's not we don't have a like here's the rubric that we use. It's actually very um, sort of t each teaching team is creating their own rubric, often in, cons in consultation with students. Uh, it's very specific to um, the actual project that they're working on. Um, but another factor is that there's a lot of other assessment that's going on that, that's not as obvious because it's happening not in the exhibition but at other times. So I hope that's helpful. So again, if you have a question for Ben, please feel free to raise your hand, that hand with the green up arrow, or to put it in the chat. And if I have missed the question, I apologize. Um, but I don't think I've seen another one. Um, I wanted to ask you, Ben, about uh, virtual learning. Is there any virtual learning taking place? We are, I would say, very tentatively getting into blended and online learning. Well, actually, and props to Classroom 2.0 and you, Steve, um, I first came, started coming to some of these sessions about um, in around, I think, January of last year. We have a we have something we call um, collegial conversations. It's the second Saturday of the month, and it's for adults. And adults come; um, they gather at our one of our schools in San Diego, and we look at examples of student project work. Um, teachers bring dilemmas, and we use these protocols. Um, the consultancy protocol, the, the project tuning protocol, the looking at student work protocol that was invented by folks at Harvard um, and uh, LASW.org, um, looking at studentwork.org, and um, the National School Reform Faculty and other groups, and we've kind of been using those protocols. But they're these structured ways to look at student work and to look at uh, educator dilemmas for school leaders as well as teachers and others. Um, and so we were doing that in San Diego, and and some teachers in Oakland said, "Hey, we, that's really cool. We'd like to come, but you know, we can't come down to San Diego for an hour and a half meeting. Can we do it online?" And I said, "Oh no, you know, it's not possible." And then I was participating in some of these sessions. I said, "Wait a minute, this is possible." And so in February of last year, we started um, using Illuminate to host those sessions. And I and I think our um, my colleagues were, have been deeply skeptical of, of using online learning as a, a sort of um, uh, synchronous online learning for, to have these kinds of conversations. And every single one of them has said, you know what, there's ways in which it's actually even better online than in person. So in terms of online learning and blended learning, we are, I think, doing some kind of cool work with adults and around adult education for educators. Um, in terms of students, not that much. We've been using Alex.com. 
a fair bit. Um, just this year, in particular, we piloted some stuff last year, and we're kind of interested in that. Um, Carnegie Mellon University's Open Learning Initiative, their OLI stuff, I think is fantastic, and we've been looking at that a little bit. Um, CK12.org, their Flexbooks, which I named, by the way, and I take credit for that. Um, the Flexbooks, I think, are kind of uh, cool. And we have some teachers that are looking at that. Khan Academy, I like the way he's chunking stuff into very short videos. So we've been trying to use that a little bit. But the short answer around student learning is not that much. And it's partly because maybe we're ignorant and, and, uh, and we're kind of good at what we do and scared of things that are new. And I think it's also because so much of the stuff is so horrible um, that if you actually like do it yourself. Some of these tools, and like I'm a really big proponent of like going on and doing it um, myself. And a lot of it just I find very disturbing. And I find it to be a textbook that's been Xeroxed, uh, basically scanned into a computer, and then a multiple choice question at the end. Uh, and everyone's like, "Oh, this is the future of education." I feel like, "What? This is horrible. This is like 19th century pedagogy that we put on a computer, and now it's supposed to be like 21st century pedagogy." So, so I think we've been pretty skeptical of online learning for students, and it's partly with good reason, and it's partly because we are, you know, dinosaurs who can't change with the times. Ben, what about uh, any voices that you like to listen to in the education world when when you have a moment of free reading time? Um, and you want to read about education, who are you paying attention to? A lot of people. Um, Kathleen Cushman is one. Uh, Alfie Cohn. You know, you got to love Alfie. Uh, you know, he's a little crazy, but, you know, he influences us a lot. Um, Ron Berger. If people don't know about Ron Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R, uh, -E -E he, he was billed to me as the best project-based learning teacher in America. And I, and I was kind of scoffing at that. And then he came out and worked with our teachers. He works for Expedition A Learning now. He was a, a teacher for 30 years uh, in a small rural school in Western Massachusetts. And he came out and worked with us. Uh, it really changed my professional life working with him. And I realized that to say that he was that he's the best uh, project-based learning teacher in America is false. He's actually the best project-based learning teacher on the planet. And he has a book called um, it's called An Ethic of Excellence. And it's all about, it's a short read. You can read it on the airplane. I read it about once a year. And he reminds me of all the things I'm not doing that I wish I was. And he makes the case for the, the power of craftsmanship as, a, as an end in itself. And yes, there's like things to learn, facts to learn and all that. But like having kids produce really high quality work is really worthwhile. And so that's something that I really love. Uh, you know, Disrupting Class uh, was very influential for me and got, like, I think got me away from my like total skepticism of technology. Um, gosh, there's so much. Oh, you know, of course, Debbie Meyer, Ted Sizer, all the stuff that I see that you're um, that you're promoting on your website, which is what I love so much. I mean, that's that's the folks who I'm really uh, inspired by. And building on Elliot Washer and Dennis Lidke at the Met, you know, a couple of nuts, but I love what they're doing as well. Okay, so is your final chance to ask Ben a question? We're minutes from finishing. Uh, if I've missed one, I apologize. Please post it again. Um, but I thought it might be interesting for you to talk uh, just sort of briefly about uh, the internships in sports and kind of how they play a role in the school day. Thank you. Uh, we have every junior goes out and does an internship in a nonprofit or a for-profit organization. Um, we, we were doing it twice a week. Um, 
on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the afternoons for a semester. And now we've, we're trying something new the last two years where they go out for three, three to four weeks full time um, with a little bit of coming back to the school. Um, and so it's part of our kind of adult world connection idea. So we have a few rules for our internships. Uh, they have to do a project. They, it has to be a project that's meaningful to the organization and meaningful to the student. Uh, so it can't be busy work, but it also shouldn't be like some sort of whimsical thing. It should be really like real work that's helpful to the organization. Um, and they have to have a one-on-one -on -one mentor, if I didn't already say that, uh, because we, we don't want this like an adult who's responsible for 27 students. We really think that the relationship between the student and the mentor is a huge piece of, of what we're doing. And then we have an exhibition at the end where they all present the work that they've created. Um, we have examples of like a at San Diego State, there's a language acquisition research resource center, and they were trying to get into online learning around their foreign language. And so some of our students were uh, producing websites for the university, for the, for university students, actually. Um, gosh, there's a lot. We have stuff on our website about that, actually. Before I go off, let me just click through quickly through a couple slides, because there's a couple other links that I think are worth um, um, looking at. You can see these board games. This were a ninth grade math board games that were shared with elementary school students. Um, this is a sixth grade uh, book, E is for Egypt, that you can you can find on our website, or there's the blurb link. Um, Perspectives of San Diego Bay, uh, if you go to sdbayguide.com, those are um, uh, books made by juniors about the bay, which are, you can buy them on Amazon. Or my teacher would, our teacher would really insist that you know that you can buy them directly for him because he gets more uh, money that way. Um, but it's a very, I think, high quality um, field guide. Jane Goodall saw it and asked to write the foreword. And in the newer edition, E.O. Wilson asked to write a second foreword for that book. Um, if you go to hightechhigh.org/projects, we are trying to amass lots of uh, interesting project work there. And also, you can see our um, books that our students are producing are there. Uh, there's the link for Collegial Conversations. Love to have folks from this group join us um, on those, those online uh, conversations. This is an example of a school leader who was, had brought a dilemma. Her dilemma was, how can I foster a school culture um, where teachers feel successful, balanced, and supported? And then we kind of went through a, a, you know, a protocol online. Those are the second Saturday of the month. More information on our website. Unboxed is a, uh, an online, it's a journal that we're producing through our graduate school with examples of project work for people to look at. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> that's just some stuff I wanted to make sure people saw. Sorry for the flurry. Oh no, that's great. Um, and I'll and I'll ping you off fine because uh, we could easily advertise the Saturday sessions um, if you would like people to come in. Okay, so Leonard says, Steve, this has been the best, most inspiring program in months. But I'm glad you feel that way, Ben. You're one of my new heroes. I'm really impressed. Uh, I, I know you been thoughtful and humble throughout tonight, but um, uh, I, I personally have learned a lot just in um, preparing for the interview and then talking with you. Sure, appreciate the work that you're doing and hope that you'll communicate that as well to the, to the faculty and staff um, at the different schools. Um, thanks everybody for coming tonight to the Future of Education. Thanks again to Illuminate and Learn Central for providing me employment to allow me to do this. Uh, don't forget on Monday our Elevating the Dialogue conversation uh, with lots of those fun same people. Uh, and Ben, thanks again. I'm going to clap for you again here. Um, really appreciate your taking the time to come on and all the work that you're doing and your willingness to share kind of the story with us. Nice to talk to all of you. Sorry that you just listened to me and I couldn't hear from you too much. Okay, thanks everyone. Have a great evening. 
Uh, we'll leave the chat open for a couple of minutes, and then um, I have another commitment, so I'm going to have to run, and we'll close things out. Take care, and good night, and thanks again, Ben, for coming from a hotel room and spending an hour with us. <laughs>